Hello and welcome back to Scottish Independence Podcasts. Can hardly believe it's September already, but we've had a brilliant summer of activism and events and out and about. And this week's podcast comes from the climate camp, which was held in Grangemouth. Ian Bruce visited the camp and talked to several guests about the camp, the purpose, and the challenges ahead for the climate justice movement in Scotland. Hello and welcome to Rising Clyde, the Scottish Climate Justice Show. For this month's programme, we're at Climate Camp in Grangemouth. 150 activists camped out on the Keneal Estate to confront what they say is Scotland's worst polluter, Ineos, the giant oil refinery and petrochemical plant spewing out nearly 3 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent every year. The camp began with a visit by the Ecuadorian indigenous leader Leonidas Issa, who talked about the need for a united, global and anti-capitalist movement to protect Mother Earth. Uh, my name is uh, Leonidas Issa. I'm from Ecuador. Está bien? Bueno. It reached its climax on Saturday with the Day of Resistance, a march through the woods over the hill to the gates of the plant itself. Hey! Hey! Climate crisis has to go. When I say hey, you say ho. Hey! Hey! Climate crisis has to go. Oh my God, it's getting hot. Climate crisis has to stop. Oh my God, it's getting hot. Climate crisis has to stop. Oh my God, it's getting hot. Climate crisis has to stop. To learn more about the aims of the camp and the challenges facing the movement, we've been talking to three of the activists, Kenny Alexander, himself a former oil worker and from Grangemouth, to Jess Gaitan Johannesson, who is one of the organisers of Climate Camp Scotland, and to Duncan Harbison, a member of the Stop Rosebank campaign. They began by telling me more about the Day of Resistance. So yesterday was the, the culmination of uh, five days of, um, of Climate Camp Scotland here in Grangemouth. And it was really um, a way for us to directly challenge INEOS and the incredible, like the this, this stark example of it being such an example of, of climate injustice. So we've got Scotland's biggest polluter by quite the margin uh, in a community that's suffering from fuel poverty. So what we did was we had a big march that started from the camp um, and went out towards the Inio site. Um, we went through the woods <laughs> and through the countryside and then towards the site. Um, the really important thing to point out here is that the police, there was a lot of over-policing. So the Bonus Road, which runs uh, through the site or between the, petroche- the chemical plant and the oil refinery, is a public road. Uh, we were walking on the pavement, so we weren't blocking any roads, but the police blocked that road for us. So they were actually disturbing the community whilst we weren't. Uh, They also kettled a big part of the march and held us for a number of hours. Um, So so that is just, it's it's really important to point out as a 
as an example of how the police is suppressing protest and so doing just, the job just, of Ineos. Just tell me how that kettling came about. I'm just sort of seeing it in my mind's eye and remembering it. So just describe <laughs> sure. it to me. You know. uh, they decided that we couldn't go onto anywhere near the bonus road, which is a public road. Uh, and they did. They put two police blockades in, in place and held us there for two hours. That's essentially what happened. So then the march got split up? Yes, mm. it did, exactly. So there were two different blockades. And then eventually, through collective decision-making, we made our way back to the camp. Um, what's also really important to say, however, was that there some um, members of Climate Camp Scotland or people organising with Climate Camp Scotland did manage to make their way onto one of the roofs in the power plant inside Ineos and Hell. Uh, and they held up banners for climate justice for Grangemouth and they were there for seven hours. Can you tell me a bit more about how that happened or is that... Uh... I mean, it's, it's, it's open. Uh, <laughs> that is what happened, but we're kind of getting more details as we go along. It only happened yesterday and they, um, they have not been arrested. So they have not been prosecuted. Okay. Any more details of yesterday, uh, Duncan? Um, I think Jess summarised it really well, but something I think is important to highlight is that we the reason we wanted to go right down to the refinery and protest there is because uh, unless you're from here, you, you don't really ever get a sense of the scale of it. That was something that really shocked me when I came here because I'd seen it from afar, of course, driving past and driving up motorways, but you never really sort of take it all in until you've taken the bus that goes through the middle and realise like all these people are living under the shadow of Scotland's biggest polluter their whole lives and it's such a such an immense sight. And I think it's really important also that they held up a sign that said climate justice for Grangemouth because we're really wanting to highlight that that community is there living with Scotland's biggest polluter and we want to support them. Yeah, well, there, there was other actions and um, for me personally, I, I was more interested in the, the kayaking um, where we had some activists kayak out to Hound Point to, and that for me that was to highlight the, the fact that not very not the majority of the oil actually gets shipped abroad it doesn't stay here within the uk so it really 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 frustrates me when the media and the government tell lies about energy security being linked to north sea oil so i, I was hoping that that kayaktivism was highlighting the fact that uh, unnecessarily extracting oil and using it wastefully selling it on the open market to make money for billionaires whilst the local community don't reap any benefit from this energy. I had an energy bill during the winter for £600 and uh, the irony of looking out onto the refinery lit up like New York where the owner's a multi-billionaire and pays zero tax it's just sickening for the local community to see this so-called energy crisis that we're in whilst somebody's making billions of pounds and not putting any of it back into the community. It's, 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 just, it's just daylight robbery. It's, it's, it's criminal. And he, he should be the one that's in the jail, not the activists that are highlighting this pollution that he's making for money, not for the benefit of the community or the country, purely for his pocket. Tell me a little bit more about that, about Grangemouth, the, the, the community. I grew up in Grangemouth. Um, when I was a child, it was a really good thing for the community. At least that's what we were told at school. Obviously, we were, we were taught to celebrate that the, the Industrial Revolution 
probably started right here with the, with the coal mines and the, this area here, Keneal Estate. There was, there was a massive Keneal coal mine pit. Um, there's a lot of coal in this area used well, for... Actually, on this estate was coal mine? Yes, yes. The, the Keneal pit entrance was down at the foreshore, but um, the actual... All the seams go everywhere. As a matter of fact, there was one seam that went right under the water. So if, um, coal miners over in Fife mined down the way and under, and coal miners here at Keneal mined down the way and under, and then they met in the middle and shook hands. And of course, all of that coal and everything that was used by um, the wealthy British landowners and uh, in, the, in the local iron foundries. So there was lots of iron foundries around here. And then we also had um, the oil refinery, but at that time, that was before North Sea oil came. Uh, we used to bring the, the oil into Grangemouth from uh, overseas, obviously. We never, we thought we didn't have oil here. But when I was growing up and I discovered the North Sea oil, it was like, well, this is going to be a super wealthy area. And, uh, you know, we had all the, all the industry and infrastructure. And so as a community... So we, was it just beginning when you were a kid then? Yes, well, the first oil from the North Sea came ashore in 1975. Uh, the Queen came here uh, to what was then known as Keneal Refinery. And she came here and um, the BBC cameras came rocking up. My, my mother's friend, he put the electricity in for the BP cameras. He's quite proud of that. When uh, the Queen pressed a button and some oil, the first oil to come into Grangemouth from the North Sea came through a little pipe. Yeah, and we as a community were told we're going to be really lucky and you're really lucky to live in this area. And, you know, we did have a lot of good community with lots of social social clubs from all the different companies that came to work here. And um, the local shopping centre was good, there was a bus depot. And yeah, now it's, it's, it's most of the industry's gone. Um, the, the pits are obviously shut. Um, most of the dye works and things have gone. The only thing that's really left as a main employer is um, Ineos, which nowadays is a private company owned by one individual. When I was a child, it was a nationalised company. So what nationalised companies means, that, like what they have for Statoil in Norway, is that the workers get good rights and good pension deals because the... the actual asset belongs to the country um, the, so they had a what's known as the golden share which means that they did have shareholders in the company so people got shares but then Margaret Thatcher sold off the, what's known as the golden share and then that's when it became a private company and uh, basically Jim Ratcliffe got it for a, a real bargain a proper bargain and ever since then workers rights have been diminished and uh, the local community benefits less and less and uh, soon when it all goes we'll see none of the benefits there will be no energy transition for us as locals when it goes so uh, actually i'm just going to jump onto one of the because you started brought it up this you know it's just one of the obviously key strategic issues is what would a just transition to close down Ineos look Ineos look like for the community here you know yeah, well, obviously, um, Jim Ratcliffe won't be caring about that, but um, I, I just transition, it's, it's a, that's in every industry. What's coming with, with degrowth and, and, and the end of pollution era, we need to transition away from that sort of environment. So when we talk about green jobs, it's a little bit different from the actual workforce in Grangemouth who, who are trying to hold on to... Um, the 
oil industries, green energy, green washing campaign that they're doing at present. Um, what people need to be doing is having their control of their own energy, solar panels on the roofs, proper insulation in our homes, um, maybe wind turbines within the communities uh, to, to, to mean that we're no longer reliant upon these oligarchs for our basic shelter. Um, right at present they're destroying that shelter with the pollution and charging us for it. And presumably it will be at least easier to manage that kind of transition if Ineos was a public company again. Yes, of course. Yes, a nationalised country like what, what Norway is, if you look at the world's richest countries, Norway is way up there. And when you when I worked up in Shetland on the, on, on the gas plant and the North Sea workers on the rigs, they, they, we all know the benefits of working for the Norwegian sector. Um, when they, they, they're basically on a three-day week the workers and they get so well paid it's incredible and because it's a nationalised industry the money generated from the oil goes into the infrastructure as I was saying there's, there's tunnels out to the islands and um, they've got massive wealth reserves that looking after the, 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 their, their health service um, obviously if we kept a hold of Grangemouth as a nationalised country then maybe they would have been not shipping four-fifths of the oil abroad. Maybe they would even keep keep some of it, more of it here. Um, a, a better example of that would be that uh, they make enough diesel and petrol down in Grangemouth to fuel the whole of Scotland easily, easily. And there's an app you can get on your phone to check where the most expensive diesel in the world is. It covers 160 countries. And Scotland is the third most expensive country in the world to buy your diesel. That is living right next to the refinery that's making enough to fuel the whole of Scotland. We're not going to get free diesel for Mr Ratcliffe, but we might have got a subsidy for the government if we were making it for the people. Energy security, ma buttocks. <laughs> Can I just add? to that yeah it's so tricky because at the same time you know you think countries like Norway so it is nationalized but from a global climate justice perspective what do you do with that we need we need to get away from fossil fuels you know entirely so we have companies like Equinor who um, is a Norwegian company they're wanting to open the Rosebank oil field which Duncan knows a lot more about and the other thing that I was going to say as well is that there's also a problem with thinking that we can just move over to so-called green energy and have exactly the same system and exactly the same consumption level that we have at the moment. Because where is that lithium going to come from? And where is that copper going to come from? It's going to come from countries like Bolivia, for example, and countries that have already suffered for decades, if not centuries, from colonialism and from the same system that created the climate crisis. Um, and also are on the front line of the climate crisis at the moment and are suffering from the direct consequences of climate collapse. So we need, we need to think really big and we need to think about, like Kenny said, degrowth as well as a just transition that is led by workers and led by those that are most impacted. Yeah, hmm. I, you kind of segue back into Sorry. The, <laughs> no, no, that's absolutely fine, that's good. No, no, into some of the, because you, we heard a bit from one of Latin American indigenous leaders at the beginning of the camp, and I'm just wondering how that sort of fitted into the kind of 
strategic view of what the issues are in the camp, you know? Yeah, so uh, for us it's been really important to create a conversation that is about solidarity between frontline communities. And, and by frontline communities, I mean both communities that are affected by climate collapse, but also communities that have depended on the fossil fuel industry and that have been, um, I was going to say screwed over by it, but that might not be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is what I mean, you know. Yeah. Um, they, because at the end of the day, and I've been saying this a lot throughout this camp, that the, at the moment the, the cost of living crisis in this country and many other countries around the world and the climate crisis are spoken about as two separate things and they are one and the same thing. The same people are suffering the most and the same people are profiting from it. So that, that to me is a really key message within the camp that, that those things need to come together and that's why uh, the program team has worked so hard to start com conversations about fuel poverty, for example, about connecting struggles, about what would a, a grassroots um, a grassroots look on Scottish independence look like from a climate justice perspective. All of those conversations bringing those together. Yeah, but how does that that just transition? I mean, you raise the issues, but what are the solutions? I mean, I mean, obviously <laughs> not in thirty seconds. You mean, but I mean that issue about how you have a just transition, which is both just for people in Grangemouth mm. and just for people in communities that are affected by mining in Bolivia or mm. elsewhere, you know, how, how is, it's a difficult equation, isn't it? It's yeah. really difficult. And the, I mean, from our perspective as Climate Camp Scotland, the, the thing that we can do is to create a space where those conversations are actually taking place because you can't do anything if you're working in silos and if you're not even connecting the dots to begin with. Um, and also you can't do anything if you're just buying the greenwashing from the big companies and from the government because those two are in cahoots and they're putting a stop to any kind of legislation um, and continuing to subsidise fossil fuels. So, you know, if you don't get there, if you're not even having those conversations, then it's a dead end. Yeah. We're not going to get anywhere. Of the great greenwashing machine. No more greenwash, no more greenwash. We are rising for system change. I'm also part of the Green Runners community, so if you look at things from a perspective, we're here campaigning for the oil workers but if you look at the other communities like the, the running community we there's our founder member Damien Hall Britain's arguably Britain's best ultra runners wrote in a book on how we can transition away from the the carbon footprint caused by the running industry um, for the events that we attend the clothes that they wear the food that we eat and how we don't have this conversation that um, we should all be having as families, as communities round about, we should be able to have an adult conversation about what's best for the children. Because right at this moment in time, things aren't looking good for them. And we need to have an adult conversation about who's making things difficult for the children. What progress do we need to see in this world? How do we want to see it in 30 years time? What, what kind of society and community do we want our children to be living in? And it should be one where they've got shelter. They've got shelter that they can get warmth in. 
and they can get food and clean air. Duncan, uh, Jess mentioned Rosebank, and mm. clearly one of the immediate challenges in all of this we've been talking about is the issue of more oil and gas yeah. from the North Sea. Tell us what's, what, what's going on with the Rosebank campaign at the moment. Also, the Rosebank campaign, we're currently... We've been in a, a state of suspense for quite a wee while now, waiting on a decision from the government. We know that they're not going to approve or reject it before the parliamentary recess. But we're, yeah, we're just currently waiting on seeing what happens and pushing politicians hard to highlight how incompatible new oil and gas is with having an, a, a livable climate. For those who aren't familiar with it, why is Rosebank so important? Yeah, so Rosebank is currently the biggest undeveloped oil field in the North Sea. And so it's, it's like another angle that we can go at. So we can look at degrowth and the industries like here in Grangemouth with any of those plants, or we can also look at the sources that feed the plant. And so that would be like stopping the oil drilling at its source. And so Rosebank's the biggest undeveloped oil field in the North Sea with about 500 million barrels of oil in it, which if you put it into another perspective, it's like if that's all burned, it's the same emissions as the annual emissions of the 28 lowest income countries in the world for a year. So like one field or 700 million people's emissions. So it's, it's a massive deal. And Equinor are currently trying really hard to get that opened up. The government are trying really hard to also get it opened up and are very keen to subsidise them about 3.75 billion to do so and so obviously it's a massive deal that we can't have either economically or environmentally. What is or could be the Scottish government's role in all of this because you know after COP26 Nicola Sturgeon appeared to take a position sort of you know against new oil and gas fields then it wasn't too clear and now with this new energy strategy that's out for public consultation, I don't think they've come back on that yet, have they? Uh, you know, it's really not very clear to me what's going to happen, what their position's going to be. Yeah, so with Nicola Sturgeon, it was a big deal when she came out specifically against the Campbell oil field. So we're currently trying to get Rishi Sunak to do the same. I think the SNP often say all the right things and then stop just short of making specific commitments. And so we're trying to push them to have a much stronger position on new fossil fuels, particularly like if we become independent, then it does become our responsibility because a lot of the time politicians like to focus on the line of, oh, that's Westminster's responsibility. We don't make those decisions. But at the same time, if they're asking for independence, then it will become their call. And we do need to know much more clearly what their position is and what their commitments will be. And even yeah. be even, even before independence, presumably, they, although it's not their decision, they can have some influence, right? Yeah, I can answer that. Um, so... As far as oil is concerned, oil is very deeply involved in politics. Any political party, any one of them, generally only gets votes if the oil companies approve. It's as, it's as dodgy as that. Now, unfortunately for Nicola Sturgeon, she signed the Under Two Alliance Agreement. And um, that basically means it's a, there's a lot of American states that have signed to the Under Two Alliance Agreement. And it's all about... Um, carbon emissions, net zero targets, and trying to stay in line with the minimum of um, the Paris Agreement, or what came out of COP26 is also. And uh, that basically says no more, no more new oil is, uh, and, uh, and a move towards the net zero targets for the, for the future of, of the Earth. But, but do you think the SNP is backsliding on that now? No, no, the, the SNP are in, a, in, in an alliance with the Green Party, who the media and um, 
are, are destroying um, at present. It's, this is all a media hype to annihilate anybody that's c coming out against oil in the North Sea. Unfortunately, the media hold the narrative and they will denounce anybody that speaks out against North Sea oil production to make them in a bad light against workers. That's what I have come up with with the Just Transition movement, with the workers at Grangemouth. They view us from the green side as attacking workers and attacking jobs. I tried to say to them that they've got much more to fear from AI than they do from environmentalists, but they, they don't hear that. They just they, they believe what the narrative that's in the media that says that we're out to shut down all work, all jobs, which isn't true. We, the people and communities from Scotland and around the world who are fighting for climate justice, hereby serve Jim Ratcliffe, owner of Ineos, with this notice of eviction for ecocide and cultural genocide. <laughs> including the following reasons. 3.2 million tonnes of CO2, making it the largest emitter in Scotland, driving the destructive climate crisis. Just to, finally, I wonder, what, how do you see the next steps for climate camp and more generally the climate movement in Scotland, but particularly for climate, climate camp Scotland? I think for me that's a really difficult question because as a collective, and, and it's worth saying and it's worth clarifying, that Climate Camp Scotland is a collective of climate justice activists from all across Scotland. And that means that you know, we work towards one event each year. The rest of the year, a lot of these people, and as you've heard with us talking, are involved in different things. And those groups might have different priorities and work in slightly different ways. And that means that, you know, we, we need big conversations in order to be able to move forward. But that's also part of the point of Climate Camp Scotland, that there's an opportunity for the whole movement in this country to come together and take stock and see where are we and what are we going next. And we're talking just as that is about to happen, because <laughs> we've got a session this, this afternoon, which is about the, the current state of the climate movement in Scotland. Uh, and we also have a session plan with like what is going to happen happen next with Climate Camp Scotland. So I feel like, you know, being just one small part of this whole collective, I can't say that without having those sessions. And it would be, it would defeat the purpose if I did. Totally take the point. But without claiming to represent Climate Camp Scotland or something, just on a personal level, if you like, yeah. how do you see the priorities, Duncan? I'm not sure where we'll be going, but I'm sure that we'll all still be aiming for similar objectives of empowering local people in badly affected areas by the fossil fuel industry to take action themselves and to open up these conversations among their communities and also for opportunities for activists from all over the UK, I don't know if we maybe had people from further, to come together and all learn together and do lots of networking and just have a really great time as well. Yeah, I mean, per personally, I can, <laughs> I can say things. I just wanted to make it clear that it wasn't like a um, representing climate camp or anything. Uh, I think for me, it's uh, partly about normalising mass direct action. 
about and that involves changing i think the image of what activism is uh because you know kenny was talking about the media earlier uh, there are so many really toxic narratives around activism that the media is very willfully putting out there and particularly about environmental activism and i think we need to change that and we need to make it clear to people that activism happens in many different ways and that we need everyone you know we have people who've spent the entire week cooking and we have people who spent the entire week writing like working with spreadsheets so we need to change the image of what activism means and make it a really open thing that is about being a person living at this point in time in on this earth it's just by being here and by wanting to survive uh, that makes you an activist and you can do that you don't have to fit into a certain role that the media is telling you of what an activist is I think another important point that comes off of that that Climate Camp at First was really good for, for me is that people can just come along and join in and it sort of highlights that activism is for everyone. It's something that you can just do with whatever your skill set currently is. Like you can think, if you think of the overlapping circles of what's, what do you enjoy, what are you good at and what's needed in the fight for climate justice, they'll overlap somewhere in the middle and for each person you need to just find what that is. Yeah, I, I, I could brush on that as well. My, my personal journey when I discovered how, how bad things were with, with the climate um, from all angles, biodiversity loss, ice loss, and uh, it, it's, it's scary. It's, it's like and you, you end up in, out in normal society, you, the media are talking about stuff, it's, it's small talk. It's small talk. You, you look and you're going, the house is on fire. Why is nothing happening? And then you speak to your friends and your neighbours and, and they don't know. And you feel alone and frustrated. And you, I mean, I, I would go to the top of mountains and I shout for the top, you're all a bunch of wasters. Because we are. We are. Whole society are a bunch of wasters. And I was alone. And then I found people like this. And you, you don't have to explain to them how bad the climate is because they all know. And it's like, oh, it's bad, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> what are we going to do about it? Well, we could try this. So you've got people that are working together towards the solutions, you know, and, and, and we all as individuals, every single one of these people here, all do something towards climate change as an individual. I mean, I, I, I totally do so much. I bank ethically, I eat a plant-based diet, I no longer fly, I don't have a car, uh, I do so much. But I'm very much alone in my community. And that's where I need these people to, to because I feel like there's their hope, their hope that something's going to get done instead of this consistent, this, this disgusting, wasteful abuse of the very home that we live in at present. It's, it has to stop. It just has to stop. Can I add a final thing? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's just, I think it's really important to say um, as well when it comes to public image of environmental activism and uh, the kind of change in narrative and change in uh, attention that the climate crisis has received in the last few years, because of the power structures of the world, it is still very white and it has a very white image. 
And we need to listen to the people who have been fighting for their lives in the face of the climate crisis for decades already, because they know how to deal with police oppression and they know how to organize from a position of oppression. And that is so, so important. No seat. Yes to life! Yes to destiny! Thanks to all our guests from Climate Camp Scotland. Look them up on social media to find out more and to get involved yourself if you want to. That's all from this episode of Rising Clyde. I'm Ian Bruce. Thanks for watching and until next time. for listening everybody if you'd like to watch the video version of this episode you'll find it on independence lives youtube channel in the rising clyde playlist we'll be back again next friday with another podcast so have a great week and we'll catch you all later bye now